you have things like femtech, right? And it's, it's really driving for women's health, which is great. But then when you take wearables out of that women's health market into just typical how many steps, how's your sleep, your heart rate variability, all those things that you're getting like on the Apple Watch or Garmin or something, it's all male algorithms still. So women are still using data that's based on men to drive their health outcomes. Hey there, friends. Welcome to the Happy Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew. We're here every Monday and Thursday talking about all things health and well-being. Do feel free to check out the Happy Habit Archive. Almost 360 episodes in there, so I think something for every interest. Now, Dr. Stacey Sims is a physiologist who specialises in women's fitness, performance, nutrition and hormone-related health. Now, this seems ridiculous given the fact that women make up about 50% of the global population, but the vast majority of scientific data that we have has been derived by studying only men, which means there's a glaring lack of science-based information that is specific to women. And this often means that women are doing the wrong training, eating the wrong foods, not reaching their full potential and or often suffering unnecessary discomfort and pain. Dr. Sim's mission is to redress this imbalance. In this episode, we talk about how body temperature is a factor in women's health and performance. We learn what exercises women should be doing and what nutrition they should be consuming. Should women be taking cold plunges? We discover how resistance training can help offset cognitive decline. We learn how women in perimenopause are in a state of sympathetic drive and what this means for their health and performance. Expect to learn of the value of interval training. Discover that women in their 20s and 30s can positively influence their personal experience of the perimenopause and menopause years ahead of time. Plus, we find out how women can reframe how they perceive weight training, consumption of protein and the gym space that is usually a male-dominated arena. Well, Dr. Stacey Sims, I'm really very honoured to have you on the podcast. I appreciate you agreeing to our conversation today. Uh, The work that you are doing and have been doing over the last 10, 20 years is very important. That is shining a light on women's health in particular, which is necessary because so much of the research, the scientific research that is done doesn't take women's health into consideration. Is that research imbalance starting to turn for women at all now? A little bit, I'd say, because um, we're seeing more and more people aware of the fact that women have been excluded and looking at scientific design. And I actually have one positive thing to say about the pandemic is that there were such sex differences in the outcomes of the vaccine and long COVID and stuff. It made the medical community sit up and be like, "What? what's going on? Because it wasn't men who were doing better at some points. It was women that were doing better. And especially with like reactions to the vaccine and stuff. So it made the medical community go, well, what's, you know, a why? But if it had been reversed, where if it had been the men that were having better outcomes, I don't think anyone would have been like, oh, look, there are sex differences. So, you know, there are some positive things. And now we're seeing more and more stuff coming out. Hey, there's such a discrepancy. We need to close the gender gap. We need to stop with the gender stereotyping. And we're seeing it 
from both the um, funding bodies, but also researchers who are driving the call for proposals and stuff saying, we're not, we're not going to look at the cells from male mice. We're going to look at the cells of female mice. We're not going to look at just male athletes. We're going to look at female athletes so that it's starting to get traction, but we still have a really long way to go. Did those observations during the pandemic and since then, did those observations validate then that TED talk that you gave about four or five years ago about women not being small men? Did you feel vindicated then? Sort of, but not really, <laughs> because we see that, I mean, everything, you have things like femtech, right? And it's, it's really driving for women's health, which is great. But then when you take wearables out of that women's health market into just typical how many steps, how's your sleep, um, you know, your heart rate variability, all those things that you're getting like on the Apple Watch or Garmin or something, it's all male algorithms still. So women are still using data that's based on men to drive their health outcomes. So in the research world, it's starting to get better. But when we're looking at the actual application and how women are integrating it into their lives to make themselves better, it still has it's still not there. It's still missing the mark. And is this because those particular sectors that develop these technologies are male dominated? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, if you think about artificial intelligence, who's sitting around the table designing these programs, right? It's primarily men. You'll have a a dominance of male engineers. You have male prompt engineers. And so the women's voice is still very small, unless you're looking specifically at something like femtech, where it is women who are driving things to help women's health in things that are specific in the OBGYN community. But again, when you're looking at um, just like heart rate variability across a month, men's will pretty much stay pretty static and, and, and steady unless there are some training perturbations. But for women, after ovulation, there's a complete switch. And so in these algorithms, they're reading them as if women are not recovering, if they're or that they're highly stressed or they're having poor sleep. Yeah, there are some of the things, but the underlying um, issue there is that there is an autonomic nervous system change with progesterone, but those algorithms aren't picking it up. So then women are like, oh, I'm highly stressed. I'm not recovered well, but I feel okay. So, you know, it's still missing that mark in that general population. And it is not being really talked about because of the men that are in the room driving most of the conversation. I mean, even when we get down to things like zone two training, that's making all the rounds, right? About how it's supposed to be so healthy and everyone should be doing zone two training. But when you look specifically at women and women's physiology from a cellular level, women have more slow twitch fibers than men. So by the nature of being a woman, they already have a a massive amount of fibers that are going to use and uptake free fatty acids. They already have the MCT1s that are clearing lactate. So for women, doing a lot of zone two training isn't that beneficial. So we're looking at like, yeah, it's really beneficial for men because they need to develop more of that aerobic capacity, that more more of that ability to use um, free fatty acids and a clear lactate. But for women, it's not the same. But we're not hearing that out there in the world because of the conversations that are being driven all started by men and then it's filtering down. Do women have any physiological advantages over men then? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there are. From an endurance standpoint, from a health standpoint, um, like 
I'll take zone two training, right? I always tell men if they want to become more like women and be better fat burners and, and be endurance, and they should train zone two to become more like women. So when you're looking from like that physiological advantageousness, women um, are very metabolically flexible, depending on what nutrition is available. So if you're eating more carbohydrates, the body uses more carbohydrates, you're eating more fat, or you're in a, a low fuel situation, the body automatically switches to using more fat. Men's bodies have to be learned or have to be trained to do that. So when you're looking from that endurance standpoint or that overall health standpoint, you're using more free fatty acids. Women's physiology is way more advantageous than men's. And it comes down to muscle mass and um, the that fact that men have more glycolytic instead of the slow twitch and women have less of the fast twitch. And so there's a lot of advantageous uh, aspects of being a, a chromosomal XX female. Um, and then, you know, you have all the other conversations around that, but that's neither here nor there at the moment. And do women's bodies have to be more adaptable by virtue of them being able to bear children, for example? Yeah, exactly. Because when we're looking at the reproductive status, I mean, there's so many things that are driven through the um, the LH pulse and and how the hypothalamus is reading nutrition and appetite. Because we look at kisspeptin neurons, we know that there are two areas in the hypothalamus that have kisspeptin neurons for women. One is appetite nutrition control and the other is endocrine control. And they talk to each other. But for men, there's only one and that's primarily um, endocrine control. So we have things like estrogen that drives appetite and appetite control. So when we start having a luteinizing hormone pulse disruption, so menstrual cycle starts downturning, then we have an interruption in appetite. So women don't necessarily feel full because when the brain is perceiving low nutrition, then it's going to tell you, you need to eat. And if you're not eating, then it's going to store fat. Why? Because if perchance you get pregnant, it needs to have those stores in order to have a viable pregnancy. But men's endocrine system is completely different and has different conversations within itself for reproduction and you know survival instance. Your background is in thermoregulation physiology. Could you tell us exactly what that is? And then how is temperature a factor in women's health? Uh, yeah, so environmental and thermophysiology. So I look at core gradient, you know, core shell gradient, how um, the body responds to heat. Because for the most part, people are very comfortable in around 20, 21 degrees. Like we keep our environment between the, well, women a little bit warmer, uh, but it's a very concise environment, both in the, in the winter and in the summer. And so when you start getting into these extremes, the body needs to know how to respond. So that's your vasodilation where you're trying to offload heat through bringing blood to the skin or through sweating and evaporative cooling, but men and women respond differently. So women will vasodilate more, try to offload heat before they start sweating. And then when they do start sweating, the composition of the sweat is a little bit different than men's. We see that if you were to take a fitness and age matched man and woman to have them do the same distance, um, like endurance distance, that men will finish with higher blood sodium levels, women will finish with normal or low blood sodium levels because of different uh, concentrations of, of sodium in the sweat and how that responds to um, how the body's actually moving fluid. So everything from how you are sitting in the cold to how you're responding to the heat is different between men and women. 
And when we're looking from a health perspective and we start seeing like cold water immersion or, you know, the Wim Hof method and how cold that is, it's too cold for women. So the gradient for women is around 16 degrees, but for men, it's at zero degrees. So women will start to get a a whole vagal response and start to get some of the adaptations at 16 degrees where men need that zero degrees. And when we're looking at heat and heat adaptation, women do better in the heat because they have a longer time to be able to offload that heat before they start sweating. So if they're going into the sauna, they have a longer time for that heat exposure. So they have a longer time for the body to respond with heat shock proteins and other adaptations to be able to increase cardiovascular adaptations as compared to men. So you would advise against women then doing cold plunges then? Not necessarily. It is uh, very situation specific. So if we're looking at athletic women who are doing heavy blocks of training, then it's very advantageous for them to get into cool water post-exercise because post-exercise women vasodilates. That means all their blood goes to the periphery, out to the skin, the hands, the feet, where men vasodilate. So all the blood goes back to the, the heart to be able to circulate, to start recovery a lot faster. So if we're doing hard blocks of training, women getting into 16 degrees post-training, that's going to cause that vasoconstrictive response and shoot that blood back to the heart the way that it does for men to facilitate recovery. But if we're looking at it for adaptations for health, for blood glucose control, for parasympathetic activation, um, for you know having more bet- metabolic control with regards to carbohydrate versus fat utilization and some of the other factors that go into metabolic control with regards to cold exposure, I tell women you're better off going into the heat. The only reason we really need to go into the cold is if we're doing something like open water swimming where you're going to get into the cold and we need to do some adaptation for cold. Or we've done a heavy block of training and in between sessions, we really need to facilitate blood flow for recovery. But when we're looking at that whole health aspect, it's so much better for women to get into that heat exposure. Once we are getting into that heat exposure, we're not only improving our cardiovascular capacity by increasing blood volume and red cell count and vascular compliance with better blood pressure control, We're also able to thermoregulate a lot better with regards to if there's a heat wave coming or if we suddenly are in that seasonal transition between spring and summer and you have really hot days. Men can can compensate for those changes a lot more readily than women can because they start to sweat faster. They have less subcutaneous fat for the most part, and their bodies are able to respond to that hot and cold. Um, Because their set point is different than women. But when we're looking at how are we responding to environmental challenges, women are so much better if they are doing that heat exposure. But is women's relationship with with heat and with temperature complicated then uh, during the the month? And obviously, because then during the, the monthly cycle, the temperature will oscillate. So does that add an extra layer of complexity to that relationship with temperature? Uh, actually, if we're doing... Um, some heat acclimation where we're looking at, we need to do a 10 day block of heat acclimation because we're going from someplace like Ireland to Kona to race uh, or from New Zealand to Kona to race. And we need to be able to perform well in 34 degrees and hundred percent humidity. That's when you would do a 10 day heat block. 
preferentially having women start that 10 day heat block in the high hormone phase when progesterone has already elevated the internal temperature and shifted some thresholds, you don't need a primer because your body's already like keyed into a higher temperature. If you start that acclimation in the low hormone phase, we know that you need to go into the sauna or have some heat exposure for about 10 minutes first and then come out for five minutes and then go back in because you have to drive the temperature up and get some threshold shifts before you can actually start that adaptation. For men, it doesn't matter. But for women, there is a slight advantage to the increased core temperature. When we look at it from a health standpoint, it doesn't really have that much of an impact. It's like if you're going to go into a sauna three times a week, it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, You have a real interest in the menopause also. Can we just very briefly do a menopause 101? So as everybody's on the same page who's listening to this, can you you just define for us exactly what the menopause is? Yeah. So menopause is actually one day on the calendar and people are like, what? So it really marks from a clinical perspective, 12 months of no periods. The time before that is perimenopause. The time after that is postmenopause. So when everyone's talking about menopausal symptoms of hot flashes, weight gain, poor sleep, um, hot flashes, mood changes, that's all really in the perimenopause in those five to 10 years leading up to that one point in time. And we see the biggest impact the three to four years before that one in, in that one point in time. And if we think about it from the other end of the spectrum at puberty, where we start seeing this huge dichotic switch between boys and girls, as they're starting to get more estrogen and progesterone in girls and more testosterone in boys, we see all these body composition changes. We see mood changes. We see um, thermoregulatory changes. And then you get your period for young girls. We're having the opposite effect on the other end of the spectrum where the body's starting to wind down because we're losing our ovarian hormones. And we know that every system in the body is affected by estrogen and progesterone. So when these hormones, their ratios start to change, so you're getting less and less progesterone and then estrogen starts to flatline, the whole body is like, hey, wait a second, what's going on? From the gut microbiome up through the brain, everything is changing because it's being affected by the fact that you have differences in estrogen progesterone ratios than what the body has been used to. For women in their 20s and 30s who are listening to this now who haven't gone through the perimenopause or the menopause yet, is it possible for them in advance of experiencing this transition in their life, is it possible for them to do anything to mitigate the effects of the perimenopause or the menopause? Absolutely. Because when we're looking at what's happening and the direct effect it has on body composition and mood, uh, we see two really important things happening. One, there is a decrease in the diversity of the gut microbiome. And the reason for that is um, when we're looking at how estrogen and progesterone are, and for the most part, testosterone utilized by the body, it has to go to the liver first and it's um, what we call conjugated. So it's, it's bound up with sex hormone binding globulin. This gets shot into the intestines through bile and then your gut bugs unbinds it. So deconjugates it and shoots it back into circulation. When we start to lose those hormones, we start to lose diversity. So up to perimenopause, you want to make sure that you're eating a wide variety of fruits and veg and fermented foods and doing all sorts of things to take care of your gut microbiome. 
is the more diversity you have, then when you start to hit perimenopause, the less impact you have on body composition. Because we know that that diversity that changes in perimenopause becomes more obesogenic. So we're seeing more and more of the phyla that's associated with body composition change and visceral fat increase, subcutaneous fat increase, loss of lean mass. So taking care of your gut is extremely important. And the other factor that's really super important is resistance training. You need to build your muscle. You need to get as strong as possible. It also helps build your bones. It helps elevate your metabolism for the most part because it's more active tissue. And you're getting a central nervous system response. So it's stimulating the central nervous system of how to lift loads. So we're not talking like orange theory and that kind of stuff. We're talking about having some power-based training in the training that you're doing so that as you start to get to perimenopause and we have to look to the eye of doing more heavy resistance type training, your body's already primed for that. So you're not going to have as many soft tissue injuries. You're not going to have as many joint issues that are all very iconic of perimenopause. So when I'm talking to people who are in their 20s and 30s, they're like, oh, you know, it's it's way far in the future. That's my mom's problem. I'm like, no, no, you can do stuff now to really help mitigate things. And not only that, we can start to see what you're doing with regards to resistance training and keeping your gut microbiome very diverse can also help with menstrual cycle issues that you might have. Can you talk to me about sympathetic drive and high cortisol levels that characterize women who are in the perimenopause or menopause? Yeah. So um, when we're looking at sympathetic drive, we say that is tired, but wired. So women are walking around and this like, I'm extremely exhausted, but I'm so wired. I can't sleep. And their body is under a lot of stress because when you're starting to have these ratio changes of estrogen and progesterone, like I said, the body is under a lot of stress because it's like, uh, what's going on? I, I can't get into parasympathetic activation because I don't have progesterone. Um, I don't have estrogen that counters progesterone. I'm also um, not able to sleep as well. So all of this helps drive cortisol up. And we know that cortisol is a stress hormone, which then potentiates a lot of body composition changes. Also, if you have a lot of cortisol, then it interferes with sleep architecture. If you have an interference in sleep architecture, then you're not, that means you're not sleeping well, you're not getting into that deep restful sleep. So it becomes this kind of catch 22. So when we're talking about in that tired, but wired and sympathetic drive and cortisol, we can mitigate that again with different types of exercise and training mechanisms. So we're looking at um, you know, like doing some true high intensity work. And we hear the other rumble of don't do high intensity if you're perimenopause because it drives cortisol up. If you're doing a 45 minute quote hit class, then yes, because you're not doing true high intensity. You end up being in a moderate intensity zone for a lot of it, which will drive cortisol up. You won't be able to recover well. But if you're doing true high intensity work where you're really polarizing you're hitting your intervals at 80 to 110% of your max and your recovery is real recovery. So it's at 50% or less and you're able to really polarize that. Then you have a subsequent post-exercise response of increased growth hormone and a subsequent parasympathetic response or, or kind of a rebound after that high intense load. Um, and so when we're looking at how are we increasing the parasympathetic response, we want to make sure that we are doing the right kind of training 
and also what we're doing before bed. So we want to not eat at least two hours before bed. We want to do all the really good sleep hygiene aspects. If we're having issues sleeping, then we look at using things like L-theanine, which is your, it's a non-protein amino acid that works specifically with GABA receptors to improve parasympathetic activation for sleep. So there are lots of little interventions that we can do. Um, but the woman has to understand that what she's been doing up to this point is not appropriate for her body when it's going through perimenopause into postmenopause. It's really important to acknowledge that so then you can make the changes that are appropriate for what's happening in the body at this point in time so that you can see the benefit, get into less sympathetic drive, more parasympathetic activation, um, be able to change the gut microbiome so that it feeds forward into better sleep, better body composition, better lean mass, better um, bone strength, lots of different things that go to the wayside when hormones start to change. You can use external stresses to instigate change for the betterment, but you have to be willing to do the work for it. And did I hear you say before that resistance training helps to offset the occurrence of uh, cognitive decline like dementia, for example? Exactly. Yeah. Because if we're looking at resistance training and we're doing heavy loads, so that power-based stuff where we're at the most six to eight reps and you're doing 80% of one RM, it's creating more neural pathways. So that's the idea behind uh, attenuating cognitive decline is challenging neural pathways. So if you are doing a central nervous system driven response for resistance training, again, it's creating new neural pathways, which helps with cognition. We also see that um, the proprioceptive aspect that comes with heavy resistance training also helps with cognition so that when you're out walking and you, you might slip or something, you're able to catch yourself because you have those neural pathways and the brain is always working in a, in a new mechanism. So that resistance training is so important. And I tell women, look, this isn't a six week training block where you're doing this. This is what we're doing to change for the rest of our lives so that when we're 80 or 90, we're still very self-sufficient. We're not, um, you know, decrepit old women that you see illustrated in um, popular media. We're looking at being very vibrant and having quality of life. So you want to start now so that when you are 80, you're still walking with your groceries or walking with your friends, you're doing what you want to do. When you're 90, you're still self-sufficient and living by yourself if you want to and able to take care of yourself. But it starts early to get that brain health, to get those neural pathways, to increase brain volume, to take care of the gut, get strong bones. All of those things are so important, especially when we're getting into that late 40, early 50 mark in that late perimenopause, early postmenopause. I watched your interview a few months ago with Katie Couric and uh, she was surprised, as was I, whenever you uh, told her what kind of weights she should be lifting, because I think she was only lifting maybe five or 10 pounds. Yeah. But you accentuated the importance of lifting heavier than that uh, for fewer reps. So for, for the benefit of the listeners, then, uh, if somebody's listening, for example, if they're in their 30s, 40s or 50s uh, and female, what kind of weights should they be lifting and how often and how many sets and reps, etc.? Yeah, so I want everyone to understand that I'm not telling you to go lift a 100 kilo deadlift tomorrow after listening to this. 
it takes time. Like I said, it's not a training block. It is phasing in and understanding how you move. So we take time, we learn about mobilization, we see how we're moving, where some of the sticking points are. We want to be able to move well before we add load. So if we're moving well and we don't have any kind of free weight, then maybe we add some dumbbells. So you're adding 10 kilos onto whatever you were doing. But you want to be able to work your way up to doing true barbell work where you are doing proper deadlifts and you are doing proper squats, maybe not overhead squats, but normal squats. You're doing single leg um, lunges. You're doing Romanian deadlifts. You might be doing some French contrast training. So all of these are kind of foreign words to so many women that are in their 40s and 50s. And it's more to the eye of how how you respond when you go to a gym. Do you look at the um, weight platforms and they're all men? You're like, I'm not going there. I don't feel comfortable. That's exactly where you should be going. And so if you're in a gym environment and they're shuttling you towards the cardiovascular equipment, then find someone who's not going to do that. You might find a personal trainer or you might find a physio who's going to help you learn how to move first. And then you might want to um, look at other people who are doing resistance training to teach you how. So there are lots of influencers out there like um, Haley Happy Fitness. She does a lot of resistance training. I know that Aaron Carson does, Betty Rocker. So these are all women that are very keyed into trying to get women to lift and lift with resistance. Um, so when we're talking about power-based training, you're eventually working your way up to being able to do two to three um, sessions a week where you are looking at uh, the five by five. So five exercises where you're doing five reps and you're doing three to five um, reps within the, those sets. So it might be five by five deadlifts. And so you're doing um, five sets of deadlifts at 80% of one rep max. And you're lifting between three and five reps. So the three would be probably the fifth rep. And then the other exercises that you would do would complement it. So you might do um, single leg Romanian deadlift, but maybe not 80%. It's more complementing. So you're taking one major functional exercise and that's the heavy lifting and you're complementing it with the same kind of movement or posterior chain, but you're not spending time doing bicep curls and tricep kickbacks. We're looking at using complex compound movements to instigate total body activation so that you're getting core, you're getting those neural trans, um, neural growth patterns, you're actually lifting a lot of load. And it's hard. It's not cardiovascularly taxing, but it is heavy and it is hard. I'm curious, off the back of what you've just said there, how do you help women reframe how they approach resistance training? Because historically, they would have avoided it because certainly having spoken with some female friends of mine in the past, they would have been afraid that if they had started lift weights, they would have looked kind of masculine or bulked up too much. So how how can we help women to reframe how they see resistance training and lifting weights and consuming protein, etc.? Yeah, that's really a personality issue. So we see some women who, you know, have grown up with the supermodels um, who, you know, in Kate Moss and being super skinny and doing lots of aerobic activity. But when their personality is, I don't want to lift because I don't want to get bulky. 
it's the explanation of in order to get bulky, you need to eat a lot and do no cardiovascular work. And as soon as you say that, they're like, oh, it's like, but the benefit is you're able to offshoot and attenuate dementia. You are able to be um, stronger in your posture. You're able to sleep better. You're able to eat more um, and not put on body fat. So you're just really looking at the sociocultural aspects and their personality. But then you have other women who aren't lifting because they are afraid to take the space in the gym because they're very shy to go out to the resistance training platforms. And I always pull them back and be like, look, for so many years, women have been told they need to be smaller and not take as much space. We've been pushed that through popular media. You see this at Christmas time where they're like, you eat two chocolate chip cookies. You have to spend 30 minutes on the treadmill to make sure you don't get big. It's like, that I'm calling bullshit on that. Okay. We want to take up space. We want to be strong. We want to take space in the room. And that's what you do. You go and you have the confidence and you can work with the PT if you want at first, but don't be afraid to go back there because more often than not, the men are very welcoming to women coming to the platforms. They might offer some help or not. They'll say, Hey, you can work in with me. Because the idea that it's very masculine, gold's jimmy, where men aren't willing to let women share the platform is becoming more and more passe because it's becoming more appropriate for women to be doing the heavy lifts. So that's what I mean is you have to look at the culture that's around them, how they grew up and what their personality is to be able to address that. You want to eat protein because you want to repair so that you can go back and you can and you can build on what you're doing. Or you want to do resistance training to get your bones strong, to build some lean mass so that when you're 80, you don't have a falls risk for breaking a hip. And you need to eat protein because protein helps build your lean mass, helps with brain health, helps with gut diversity. And we know that as you get older, you need more protein so that you don't put on extra belly fat. So, you know, it is just a little bit of conversation, but I tend to find the conversation with the younger women is more about taking space. And those who are in their late forties, early fifties is about, we want the protein and we want to be able to do stuff when we're 80. Hopefully this taking space conversation becomes the predominant one because that's what we're all pushing. What supplementation advice would you have for women listening in? Um, I'm not a huge fan of relying so much on supplements. There's not a lot of research that's out there. We look at some of the top popular supplements in the sports space and most of the research, like almost all research has been done on men. So we see things like beet juice and nitrates that everyone's trying to use to improve vascular compliance. doesn't work in women. It actually can be counterproductive, especially in premenopausal women. If we're looking at health supplements, the two that I will recommend it's creatine monohydrate, and that's not the bodybuilding where you're doing 20 grams a day, but it's three to five half a teaspoon because that really helps the brain, heart, and gut health. And of course, muscle function and then vitamin D, especially for those of us who are so far away from the equator. We tend to have long, dark winter days and we end up with low vitamin D levels. And if you are a woman who's premenopausal and have really bad uh, PMS or PMT, then we're seeing there's a link to low vitamin D. So getting your vitamin D checked and supplementing, or if you don't have access to getting 
your vitamin D levels checked, then taking a low dose of no more than 2000 international units every other day is just going to bring your levels up and, and pretty much keep them at a, a status quo baseline. And you'll start to see a difference. If you've been low, you'll be like, oh, I can handle the stress. It elevates mood. It helps with, um, like I said, the PMS, the PMT, and you'll also start to see less bone stress injuries and soft tissue injuries. I was on your website and uh, some great resources on there, stacysims.com, uh, a link to uh, several of your books. You've written multiple books. The most recent one is Next Level. Uh, to those people not familiar with Next Level, could you just give us a brief outline of the content of that book? Yeah, that book is written for women who are experiencing perimenopause and into postmenopause. And it came around um, after we wrote our first book and we only had one chapter on menopause and we got inundated with women who were active and they were going through peri and postmenopause and couldn't find any information because really there isn't anything unless you are postmenopause and you have a clinical issue. And that's where the research picks up. So I was like, Celine, who's my co-author, we need to write this book on, on peri and postmenopause to help all these women who are in their 40s and beyond. So next level is all about perimenopause, postmenopause, what it is, what you should be doing. Um, we have case studies in there. We have a big section on menopause hormone therapy, why you should use it, why you shouldn't, um, what are your considerations, what are some alternatives, what are all your signs and symptoms of perimenopause, because a lot of women don't understand what it is. So it's just a deep dive into it and how to come out of it and be able to keep performing and improving your potential as you go through perimenopause into postmenopause. Now, also on your website is a course called Menopause 2.0. Could you tell us what this is? Um, yeah, I am an academic. I've been teaching university classes forever. My husband um, has a background in that as well. And he's also online education. And he's like, all of these seminars and everything you're doing, we need to put into a course. So the Menopause 2.0 is uh, a deep dive, again, kind of like Next Level. You can look at Next Level as being the guidebook, but the Menopause 2.0 is a deeper dive where I'm explaining the interactions. I'm explaining everything to a greater scientific level, but we are using very layperson terms. So you don't have to be a scientist to take these, these courses. It's more about... You want to understand for yourself or for your clients and how to action the information. So there's, I think we do about 10 or 11 case studies all across the board from you know, general fitness all the way through to ultra endurance and Olympic lifters and strongman athletes, um, just really trying to get people to understand what they can do based on their activity level or you know some of their clients' activity levels. And as well as that, you've a partnership with Stanford University and you're also working with, I believe, Catherine Ackerman at Harvard as well. So what does that involve? I'm part of the lifestyle medicine group at Stanford. Um, and this is you know, lifestyle medicine is all about healthy aging. So we're looking at all the re we're a big collection of physiologists and clinicians and psychologists and neurophysiologists and we're bringing all the research together to really have a cohort to kind of get out to the general population of you want healthy aging. And these are ways that you can improve as you are going through whoever you are. Um, Catherine Ackerman is part of the female athlete um, kind of research quorum that is across the world. 
And she is a sports endocrinologist, so is very heavily involved in red S and or, you know, relative energy deficiency in sport and the pathophysiology aspect of female athletes. And I'm on the prevention side. So we do some collaborative research and publications and writing so that we can have we do all of these things to prevent this. But if you end up in this situation, these are the things we do to get you out of it. Well, look, I think you're doing some great work and I think you're at the vanguard, the forefront of this. Uh, you're a pioneer in this area, which is crazy considering it's 2023. And uh, and the fact, as you said at the outset, that most of the research that has been done is male oriented and uh, we really need much, much more data, more information and uh, more research to be done on women specifically. So I really admire the work that you do and uh, I'll put a link to your, your website and your book Next Level uh, in the show notes for this episode. But thank Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Happy Habit Podcast. If you're enjoying the series, please like, subscribe, share and leave the podcast a four or five stars if you think we have earned it. Until next time, stay happy. Stay happy.